Word. So if you have a copy of the Scriptures, let's turn together to Colossians chapter 3. We're considering this morning Colossians 3, verses 18 through the first verse in chapter 4. Let's hear God's word together. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let's pray and let's ask that God would cause his word to be effectual among us, that he would help us by the ministry of his spirit. Father, as we hear and read your word, we're mindful that you are so careful and so knowledgeable of the very things that concern our lives just even seeing the various roles and responsibilities, the titles and places that we fill and fill our days with. And Lord, it should not come to any surprise to us that you know the very hours and days and responsibilities that mark us out because you are our creator. And Father, we look to you this morning reminding ourselves that you are our creator. And that means that you have all wisdom and authority. That you have all goodness and all great purposes in mind when you said, let there be. And so, Father, we ask and we pray that you would be gracious to us and that you would grant us hearts of humility and hearts of meekness. That this morning we would receive the implanted word which is able to save our souls. Help us to see as you, you as you are and we as we are. Lord, forgive us for how many times and how often we try and usurp your authority and define our roles, our terms, our purpose, our expectations according to our own and not yourself. And Lord, would you be so good and so gracious to us this morning that you would show us the great joy and delight of walking according to the wisdom of your counsel. And Lord, would you not only show us the goodness of that, would you work in us the good fruit of that, we pray. For Christ's sake, amen. If I think about it, I can still smell the aroma of dry erase markers on Coach's small whiteboard, which was the focus of our attention at numerous timeouts. The whole purpose, as I understood it, 
of those X's and O's, those dotted lines or sweeping arcs, was to ensure that everyone in that timeout was clear as to their role and their responsibility in the dwindling minutes that lie ahead of us. Understanding who we were, understanding the particular role we were to play, was essential to any sort of success that we were to have. If the point guard did not do his job at the top of the key, or if our gangly center suddenly thought he was the point guard, we were done for. It was absolutely essential that in that moment we understood and we were clear on the purpose and the function of the task at hand. Now, if you didn't play high school basketball, you certainly could probably correlate the same observations into different applications within your own particular life. And this concern over roles and responsibilities is the focus of the majority of Colossians chapter 3. The majority of these verses are peppered with the sort of repeated instruction that says, you must, you must, you must. And the force of that obligation has everything to do with the Christian's new life in Christ. Every obligation, every command that you read in Colossians chapter 3, only exist and is binding upon you, Christian, because of the reality that's described of your life within verses 1 through 3. You've been raised with Christ. You died with Christ. Your life is hidden with Him. And when He returns, you also shall appear with Him in glory. If this is true of you in Christ then this is to be true of you in your life. That is the summary of Colossians chapter 3. And the portion that we read this morning has a three-part structure of husbands and wives, parents and children, bondservants and masters. It's really a three-fold distinction of various roles and responsibility that you could say marked out the majority of relationships within the Colossian church. If you heard this letter... You could put yourself in one of those categories, maybe a couple. And so it was immediately relevant to you as you understood, I am in Christ and I'm a new creation, and I'm also a wife. I'm a husband. I'm a child. I'm a parent. I'm a bond slave. I'm a master. Well, what does that mean? Now, this sort of household code that Paul is picking up on here It was common in lots of Greco-Roman instruction and writing. If you read Plato, you'll read similar instructions as to what husbands and wives and slaves and masters ought to be doing and how they ought to be living. And these household codes that were common in that day were given primarily for the well-ordering of a society. If you want your city-state to flourish and you don't want your homes to disintegrate, There's a particular code that you would exhort your people to live by primarily for your own preservation. But Paul picks up on this household code and he has much more in mind than just keeping the peace or self-preservation. When Paul walks through this household code of husbands and wives and parents and children and bond slaves and masters, he has something much greater in mind. What scripture teaches concerning wives and husbands, slaves and masters, 
it's more than just keeping the peace. It's more than just knocking the dust down and making sure that everybody's just doing okay. It's so much more than keeping the peace. Actually, if you read this, it exists to provoke a question. Maybe a question that you've already asked this morning. This sort of teaching here in Colossians 3, it turns heads. It raises questions. It stops traffic. It provokes the onlooking neighbor or friend to ask you, Christian, you're not really going to submit to your husband, are you? I mean, you're not going to love your wife as yourself. You're not really going to obey your parents in all things, are you? And the Christian responds with, yes, because Jesus is Lord. Did you notice that the word Lord appears eight times in this section? The structural emphasis of Lord being repeated, sometimes translated as master, same word. This structural emphasis, Christian, it is meant to help us understand the meaning of the text. If we're going to understand the design and the ultimate purpose of our roles and our responsibilities, we must see them in relationship to Jesus as Lord. Read this section not just as bare instruction, but read it with the emphasis that is there. All of this is true, and you are to live this way because of who you are in Christ and who Christ is. He is Lord. Therefore, live in this way. So what are we saying this morning? Well, we're saying that the supremacy of Christ and our new life in him is never intended to be lip service. And we hate lip service alone, don't we? Is there anyone who loves a hypocrite? Even your non-Christian friends who would never step foot in a church, what would they automatically agree to? I hate hypocrisy. And Christian, you should be able to turn around and say, me too, you should come to church. And then explain what you mean. Because what we mean is that our new life in Christ is never intended to be lip service. Our new life in Christ that is, as we saw last week, marked by forgiveness and love and unity and peace, must be lived out within the roles and the responsibilities that God has given to us, especially in the home. And that's the focus of the text this morning. Our marriages our parenting, and our vocation. We have a lot to get through this morning. The majority of it's going to be in the first section, so don't try and do the math by how long we spend on husbands and wives, multiply by three, and figure you might get home by dinner. Not equally proportioned this morning. But let's listen with hearts of meekness to receive God's word. What does God's word say to marriages? Well, that's found in verse 18 through 20. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Well, the majority of the world experiences the bonds of marriage. A Christian is the one who sees their marriage illuminated by Scripture. 
And so what that means is that the purpose of marriage and the roles within marriage are going to be remarkably different for the Christian than the non-Christian. Though they both may say we are married, to be a Christian means that that term marriage is defined directly by Scripture. Consider what Paul says to each partner. Wives, proclaim Christ's rule by your submission to your husband. Remember, keep the lordship of Christ in view and how his lordship illuminates each role. Wives, proclaim Christ's rule by your submission to your husband. Now, I'm going to admit this straight away. This very subject of a submissive wife is one of the more unpopular ideas that you could ever put forward in today's context. Sometimes it's because of a wrong understanding of the word. Other times it's because of a sinful rebellion against God's design. We have to acknowledge both exist. Therefore, we need to be clear on what Scripture is teaching and isn't teaching. But what is the act of submission? Let's just define the term. The word itself has to do with a willful subjection and an intentional decision to bring yourself under the authority of another. But this does not mean that the wife becomes a slave. It cannot mean that she never opens her mouth. It cannot mean that she never has an opinion or an expressed opinion. It cannot mean that she never provides counsel. For if that were true, she would have to be inferior to her husband, which cannot be true because she is also an image bearer of God. But what we can say is that biblical submission calls for a wife to make herself submissive. Nowhere in scripture is the husband commanded to call his wife into submission. Rather, every time that this command is given, it's to the wife to bring herself under the headship of her husband. Okay, so what is the scope of submission? Is it just submission to men, as some would wrongly lead you to believe? No, there's a scope that's defined here. What is the scope of this submission? It's defined as unto her husband and in the Lord. It's not a call for women to be submissive to men. It's a call for wives to submit themselves to their husbands. Likewise, Paul is saying this is fitting in the Lord. Meaning a wife is not obligated to carry out sinful directives or commands. Ultimately, her submission is unto the Lord, and anything that is contrary to who God is or his commands, that's out of bounds. Okay, so what's the significance, really, of this submission? Is it just a well-ordered home? Is it just to keep peace? Is it just some sanity? No. The significance of submission is to proclaim that Christ is Lord. It's to proclaim that he is all that Colossians says he is. We get further illumination on this in Ephesians chapter 5, reminding ourselves that the command for a wife to submit to her husband is not just merely a functional design of a well-ordered household. Ultimately, marriage is a picture of Christ. And so the wife's role within the marriage has something to do with the purpose of marriage, the purpose of marriage to display a picture, to tell a story, 
about Christ and the church. Therefore, a wife is to submit herself as an expression of worship, seeking to better tell the story or retell the story to who? Watching neighbors? Children in the home? Co-workers? Fellow church members? Meaning that as this couple moves in and around through the various aspects of life and as she seeks to bring herself under the headship of her husband, she is in part helping retell the story of what it means for Christ and the church to relate to one another. We should be instructed in what it means for this great purpose of Christ being Lord over his people. But like any other biblical teaching, you know it's not merely knowing the facts that wins the day. It's actually responding in faithful obedience. You may have spent years in a Christian context. You may have attended numerous marriage conferences. You may be well acquainted with the Hebrew and the Greek of what it means to submit and honor your husband. Are you? Knowledge alone is not obedience. Are you? Are you his helper? Are you trustworthy? Are you dependable? Are you faithful? Are you discussing matters lovingly and openly and honestly with your husband? What would the word of God, being brought by the spirit of God, be illuminating to you in regards to your role if you're a wife. Wives, Christ is Lord, therefore display his lordship through your submission to your husband. Husbands, display Christ's rule through your love for your wife. His lordship, your wife, your love. A husband is the head of his wife. But the way in which he leads makes all the difference to being faithful to Christ's command or unfaithful. The mere fact that you positionally are the head doesn't mean you're being faithful. It may, but it may not. Love, Paul says, is the bond of marriage. Keep in mind just the verse above this in Colossians 3 that we were exhorted to hear. That love, verse 14, binds everything together in perfect harmony. Use that context to illuminate this command. This means that his headship is to be dominated, saturated by the posture of love. Now, I recognize in even saying that, that many husbands can be the worst evaluators of how they are doing in this area. We can redefine love so easily according to our own terms. We can substitute sentimentalism or just raw sacrifice. I go to work. I love you. I sent you a card. I love you. We can use cultural expressions to fill this word love 
and think that we are checking the box saying, I am loving my wife. What is the standard that Paul is calling us to as husbands? What is this word love? We could go many places. Ephesians 5 would most certainly be a helpful place to start. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. This is the standard by which every husband is to evaluate his relationship to his wife. In the space of a few verses, husbands are commanded to love their wives three times. Twice he's told to love his wife in the same way or to the same extent that he loves himself. And you do. Once he's told to love his wife just as Christ loved the church. Husbands, are you in harmony with your wife? I'm asking that because that's some of the distinction that Paul calls out in the verses ahead about putting on love, that it binds everything together in harmony. So really, to answer the question, am I loving my wife, ask the diagnostic question of, are you in harmony with your wife? Ask her that. Because the fruit of the bonds of love are going to be that unity and that harmony within a relationship. If not, could it be that you have failed to keep the bonds of love in place? Love is the bond of marriage. But he says it just because sometimes husbands need an extra reminder to say things twice. He says it from the opposite angle and says, essentially, not only is love the bond of your marriage, but harshness is what will erode your marriage. If love is the bond that will promote unity and harmony, then any manner of harshness, or some translations, an embittered spirit, will eventually destroy this bond. When a wife fails to live up to her husband's unrealistic ideals when bitterness or selfishness controls his heart, then feelings of disappointment, feelings of entitlement, they flood his heart and they overflow into his mouth and he deals with her harshly. It's not the circumstances. It's the heart. Brothers, whenever we anoint ourselves as the Lord to be served, then we are going to judge and punish our wives when they do not treat us as we think they deserve. But what is the husband to proclaim through his marriage? Not that I am the final Lord, not that I am the authority, but in the way that I love my wife, I am displaying this great proclamation that Christ is Lord. The way that I treat her exposes not just my lip service, but the true reality of who I am. Now, in passing, let me say a word to every 
wife that can hear the sound of my voice. We recognize the unfortunate reality that some men profess the name of Christ, but will defame him in the way that they treat their wife. We want you to know that for a man to raise his voice, to raise his fist, to use his authority to oppress his wife under the title or supposed title of headship or insist that she owes him favors, that that is a sin. And as a sin, it must be dealt with swiftly, fully, and biblically. And so if you have concerns about feeling unsafe, if you have any concerns about feeling threatened, wives, please speak up. Please reach out to one of our pastors that you can honestly come and say what is actually happening, if that is happening. That we never want to be a church where we paper over the titles but don't give any validity to what that actually means. And if there's any man who believes that he is justified or excused in the way that he demeans, belittles, or is embittered or treats his wife, hear the command of Scripture, men. You're in sin. And you are in direct rebellion against the Lord Jesus. And he loves his daughters and he does not look away. He deals justly. And he deals Honestly, the rule of Christ demands that a man serve his wife as the evidence that he's serving Christ. That's where that is seen. To say Jesus is my Lord and then when your wife is shamed or she's ridiculed or she's embarrassed or treated harshly, that should feel shockingly distorted and out of place. Men, is the Spirit of God convicting you, rebuking you through His Word and by His Spirit? If so, the Scriptures would also call you to confess, to repent, and to bring that sin into the light. Because in confession there is hope. In covering sin, no man will prosper. Husbands and wives display the lordship of Christ through their respective submission and love. What about parents? What about parenting? What about children? What about fathers? How is the lordship of Christ displayed in that area? Paul continues. Look back at your Bibles at verse 20. Children. Obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. How is the lordship of Christ to be expressed between parents and children? Let's speak to children first. What does God's word say to you? Well, it says right here that children... You are to testify of Christ's rule in your obedience to your parents. How many children are listening today? It's a trick question. You might be here, but maybe you're not listening. Yeah, see? God's word has two things to say to you. 
One, obey your parents because it's God's design. To hear that your obedience to your parents pleases the Lord, it's a reminder that God has a particular plan in the way that things ought to be. He has a structure and a design. There are certain things that he says, that is good and that pleases me. There are certain things that he says, that is wrong, that is sinful, that displeases me. And what he says here is that obedience to your parents is one of those good designs that pleases God. God is your creator. He is perfect in all of his design and goodness, and he's established that you children are to honor your father and mother. So that's the first thing he says, that it's God's good design. But Paul also says that obeying your parents' children is actually also an act of worship. When you obey your parents with gladness, and some of you know the difference between gladness and we'll just call not gladness, that there's a difference, that you can do certain tasks that mom or dad have asked you to do, but maybe you've heard, even if you've done them with a bad attitude, that they've called you back and patiently said, that's not actually obedience. But glad obedience, done unto your parents, can actually be an act of worship. When you are saying in your obedience, I'm doing this because Christ is Lord. This is good because he is God. And for those of you that are older, junior high, high school, this matter of pleasing God and honoring him, it's important for you to hear as well, not just your younger brothers and sisters. You might say, especially if you're moving to the end of high school, looking ahead, I just want to glorify God with my life. People ask you, like, what do you want to do? I don't know, but I want to glorify God. That is a wonderful ambition. But do not make the mistake of thinking that that glorifying of God starts once you graduate or you get into college or you land in a particular vocation or you are married, that you can tend to think that glorifying God is something that happens then and I'm looking forward to that, and I want to be prepared for that. But hear the instruction of Scripture. What does it say? The desire to glorify God, the genuineness of your desire to glorify God, is actually proven now. Lip service for you, junior, senior, in high school, would be to say, I want to glorify God, but you push against obeying your parents. Your good desire to glorify God will be proven in your obedience to your parents and everything. That's what Paul would say. You make the lordship of Christ clear in your life as you obey your parents in all things. Now, what about fathers? Takes two to tango. Fathers, reflect Christ's rule through your care for your children. You see the theme and the pattern that we're speaking of here? He is Lord over all. All of Christ for all of life. Okay, I'm a father. What does that mean? Father, reflect Christ's rule through your care for your children. Now, the joys of response and responsibilities of fatherhood cannot fully be unpacked here, but Paul gives us two clear instructions, dads, that we can at least hold on to and meditate on. One, fathers don't provoke but nurture. Two, 
Don't tear down, but build up. Don't provoke, but nurture. That's the plain instruction. Let's say what this isn't. Don't read this and wrongly think that avoiding provoking our children means that we would never do anything that would upset them, annoy them, or make them angry. I just don't want to provoke them. Fathers, you know this because you've seen it in the lives of other people, but you may not see it well in your own life. If we are avoiding confrontation, and if that is a goal or a motivation as a parent, do you know what that's like? It's like racking up massive credit card debt. You solve the short-term problem. Bedtime, not a problem. No dust, no tears, no blood. But you have racked up massive debt. And the weight of what is coming due is going to ruin you and your child. If you begin to think that provoking just means keeping the peace, you are building a much bigger problem. So it can't mean just the avoidance of conflict. Instead, what we're called to do as fathers who are leading in the parenting is to avoid handling our children in any way that would be an unrighteous provoking to anger, an unrighteously incitement to anger. It's the sort of irritation, it's the sort of exasperation that leads to resentment. This sort of provoking, it's concerned more with behavior than character. Do you know what I mean by that? It's more concerned with the immediate behavior than what is the character that's going to be formed that must be instructed that's going to change over long term. Affecting behavior is easy. Speaking to the issues of character requires time, requires God's word, and it requires the transformation of the Holy Spirit. Fathers, do not provoke your children. Don't tear down but build up. That's essentially the second exhortation. As you lead in your home, in parenting, seek to exhort your children and nourish them instead of discourage them. That's combining Ephesians 6 and Colossians 3 here at this point. Because in Ephesians 6, 4, Paul gives this helpful instruction reminding fathers that it is our responsibility to lead in parenting by bringing them up or nourishing them in the instruction and admonition of the Lord. This is creative. Some of you might not call yourself creative, but if you're a father, you are called to be creative in the sense that your heavenly father is creative. He brings things forth. He cultivates. He nurtures. And fathers, we are called to cultivate our children. We are called to, by God's design and by his grace, cultivate something within our children to nourish them and bring them along in the instruction and admonition of the Lord. So what we're saying is this. When the good news of Christ enters a home, it transforms the way children relate to parents and parents relate to children. If you profess Christ this morning... What are the good evidences of God's grace that you can see in your home? I recognize in a passage like this, it's very easy to start giving you a list of all the failures that you know that you are doing, and that's important. But have you also taken time, fathers, mothers, children, to look at your home and just think back over the last six months, the last year, five years, 
think about the evidences of God's grace in your home is the gospel is come into your home, what can you see in regards to the fruit of the gospel, fathers, in the way that you're relating to your children? Children, the way that you, say you're, you see your parents relating to you. Parents, the way that you see your children responding and what it means to obey unto the Lord. Take time to meditate upon those things and give thanks to God for what he is doing. Marriage, parenting, Lastly, let's consider vocation. By this, let's look at verse 22. Bondservants. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Marriage, parenting, vocation. Now, I'm using this word vocation to summarize this section to help us hopefully get our hands around the immediate context in the Church of Colossae and the application to us today. Now, the word vocation, it has to do with calling. It's a word that was primarily and heavily used in prior centuries, and it carried with it this sense that God's providence is over all things, And specifically, the work that you did was your calling. Under the eye of God's providential rule, and I am this. Less to do with our modern sense of, what are you passionate about, bro? And more to do with the sense of, what has God placed in your life by his sovereign design? You're called to that. So, you could say, okay, what's on the pay stub of your particular paycheck? Who sends the money? Well, that's your calling. That's your vocation. Maybe you do certain things throughout the week where there is no visible paycheck, but you are responsible for those and you are responsible for things. That's your vocation. That would also apply here in this immediate context when Paul speaks to bondservants and masters. It may seem odd to address bondservants and masters within a section that's dominantly about the home, But did you know that probably one-third of the population within the city of Colossae were bondservants? So imagine you're in the church in Colossae and the gospel's coming and it's bearing fruit as is among you and in the whole world, as Paul says in chapter 1. And gather the gathered saints as they come like we're doing the first day of the week. Well, there's going to be wives and husbands, certainly children, fathers. But among your congregation, there will be bond slaves. There will be masters. And even in the home itself, there would be this vocation of bondservant and master. Now, just in passing to say this form of slavery was very different than probably what our minds go to in our modern context of the African slave trade. The Bible denounces emphatically man-stealing. That is a sin. The sort of and servitude that we're speaking about here different 
than racially based stealing of men and putting them into slavery. In the context of Paul's day in this first century, this relationship of bondservant and master was very different than we might go to immediately. You could be a bondservant for many different reasons. You could voluntarily be a bondservant knowing that you at least had housing, you had work, and you could be taken care of. You could voluntarily go in because of a debt. Sometimes it was because of war or a city-state conquering another. And instead of killing all of you, we will employ you as bondservants. So there's many reasons that in this first century, you might be responsible or under the responsibility of another. So in talking about vocation, we're recognizing that the various callings that we find ourselves placed in, that we hold, even if it's a bondservant and a master, they carry with them certain expectations if Jesus Christ is Lord. So if Jesus Christ is Lord, what does Paul say to bondservants? Bondservants, announce Christ's rule through your obedience. By definition, a bondservant is taken up with the will of another. If a bondservant were to open his calendar app, he's not at liberty to fill the hours of that week as he decides. Somebody else is doing that for him. A bondservant does not decide when she will awake or when she will go to sleep. Somebody else dictates those decisions for you. So how does someone live out their days when those days belong to another? That's what we're asking. Paul gives three clear instructions. Number one, it's to be done in all sincerity, fearing the Lord. It's to be done, number one, in all sincerity, fearing the Lord. Now, eye service is a temptation that every worker faces, especially when the boss isn't around. You read all the same articles about the work-from-home debacle that is right now. Is every manager wringing his hands, wondering if his remote workers are actually working, or is this just eye service? You showed up for your one-to-one, but what are you doing with the rest of your other 38 hours? People-pleasing, eye service, is especially a temptation when there's no direct oversight. But the Christian is one who works with a different perspective. The master might be out of sight, but I, as the Lord's servant, understand that I work under the eye of God. So while he may be away, there is another that I answer to that sees all. So let me just ask this in passing. How mindful are you of your life being lived under the presence of God? Coram Deo, before the face of God. How often does that thought enter your brain as you go throughout your week that what I am doing is before the face of God, that he sees? Now, in saying that, the Christian works in such a way to say that you do it in all sincerity, fearing the Lord. That's not a slavish fear that cowers and approaches God with dread because they're always looking to their obedience for their acceptance. The connection between slavish fear has everything to do with your obedience and acceptance. And if you're looking to your obedience as the reason for your acceptance, you are going to be in a slavish fear 
of God. But the Christian is one who lives with a filial fear. This is the reverence for God as Father. And I am constantly looking to his acceptance of me for my obedience. Do you see how they're flipped? I still fear God. But it has nothing to do with my obedience. I fear him as he accepts me, and therefore I greatly want to honor him. That's how the Christian lives, in all sincerity, fearing God. But not only with all sincerity, he says, with all your heart for the Lord. The bondservant is liberated to work heartily, even for an unworthy master. It's easy to see the incompetence of a boss, the incompetence of a supervisor, and quickly justify mediocre work. You know what I mean. (laughs) How easy is it? Well, they're not doing that. Well, they don't even know what they're doing. Well, I'm just trying to bide my time here. How many ways can we justify mediocre work because of the merits of the one we work for? But the Christian has a different master. With all your heart, for the Lord. That means whatever our vocation is, we can work not based on the character of the, or the capacity of those who are over us, but for the Lord himself. And so that's tremendously liberating. It's the sort of faithfulness, it's the sort of devotion done unto him, and therefore our work is done with all our heart. Because I'm looking past the incompetence, or I'm looking past the, the, the mediocrity of those that I'm supposed to work for and say, I work for Christ. And therefore, I go with all my heart. The bondservant, thirdly, is mindful of his reward that is from the Lord. Typically, slaves don't receive inheritance. But the Christian bondservant is one who has his, radically, his life radically transformed. He has died with Christ. He's been risen with Christ. And when Christ returns, he shall appear with him in glory. And that means this bondservant has an inheritance. Do you remember Colossians chapter 1, verse 13? Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints and the light. The gathered church standing there. Husband, wife, parent, child, bondservant, master. Bondservant, you have an inheritance. And so you work heartily, mindful of your reward. Now, you might not be a bondservant, you might not have a master, but you have a vocation, Christian. The call of Scripture is to proclaim Christ through your obedience. Do you see that connection? Christ is Lord, therefore display his lordship through your obedience in your vocation. That is how a Christian plays out his role or her role and responsibility in their particular calling, their particular vocation. Testify of the worth of Christ through your faithfulness, through your diligence, and through your contentment. While others might whine, others might complain, others might slack off and take advantage, you speak of Christ in the motive and in the manner in which you apply yourself to the particular vocation that God has called. Student, Worker, mother, work for Christ unto him. Bondservant, masters, lastly. How does a master display the lordship of Christ? Dominate or demonstrate Christ's rule through your righteous rule. One sentence. 
Think how the rule of Christ transforms our earthly responsibilities. How ought a master relate to his earthly responsibilities? Well, Paul just gives two exhortations. Supply them with justice and equity and remember your master in heaven. Probably obvious, but remember there's no bill of rights. There's no workers union. There's no child labor laws in Colossae. So that means the execution of justice and equity it was largely left up to the individual master. How it fared for you was determined by how he decided to be. There's no governing body that's ultimately going to dictate how he treats his bondservants. But a Christian bondservant, regardless of the fact if none of those governing authorities ever even exist, has a greater governing authority, which is the Lord Christ. And therefore, a Christian master looks to those whom he is responsible for and says, I will supply them with justice and equity. Where culturally, it would be very easy to give you this and give you this, much more or much less. I work for the Lord Jesus. And therefore, I will supply you with justice and equity. Church, the principle at hand is this. Those in power have a responsibility not to abuse their power, but to use that power for the welfare and the security of those they're responsible for. What measure of influence and authority has God given you? Whatever that is, however big that slice of the pie is or what you think it is, are you being faithful in using that authority for the security and welfare of those that are underneath or subordinate to you? That is how you display the lordship of Christ. It does not matter what scripture verses you put up in the break room. It does not matter the speech that you give every Christmas about how Christ is your Lord. If you are not supplying justice and equity to those that are underneath you, you are not preaching the consistent gospel. Just as a husband has a manner of responsibility and authority in the home to love his wife, not provoking his children, the master is to treat his bondservants with justice and fairness. The emphasis of this passage is inescapable. Within our marriages, our parenting, our vocations, the supreme lordship and authority of Christ is to be seen and it's to be felt. You cannot read this portion of scripture and walk away and say, Jesus is Lord, but it doesn't matter in my home. That would be a failure of reading this text. Well, a wife may secretly despise her husband, and he may deal with her harshly behind closed doors, and a child might even fool their parents, and a father might be harsh with his children. A worker might just only give eye service. And a master might think he has the final say. The scriptures would arrest us and stop us to such foolishness and remind us that Christ is all. That he's preeminent. That he rules over his creation with perfect wisdom and clarity and goodness. If we have been raised with Christ and our lives are united to him, Christian, then our profession of Christ as Lord must be more than words. That's what Paul is saying. It must also, especially, transform the relationships within our home. 
profess Christ as Lord by all means here and in the community. But Christian, if you've been raised with Christ, testify of his lordship in the way that your home is structured and runs. Think through the particular season that God has given to you in this life or the roles and responsibility that God has given to you. Do you see them as a platform that God has given to you to make much of his son? Specifically, that he's Lord and that he's Christ. I told you that Lord shows up eight times in these verses. There's one particular title that's right there in the middle that should really remind us of the emphasis of what this is. It's in verse 24. Not only is he Lord, he's the Lord Christ. To proclaim him as Lord is to testify with your words and witness that Jesus is worthy of our worship, adoration, and obedience. To proclaim him as Lord through your submission, through your loving obedience, and through your leadership means that you testify of what Paul has already said back in chapter 1, that he is preeminent over all things. Think about the second word, that he is not only Lord, but that he's Christ. If you're proclaiming that he is Lord and that he is Christ in your home, then it means that you're testifying with your word and your witness that he's the anointed one, that he's been sent by the Father to rescue his people. That's what Christ means. It's not his last name. It's a title, the Messiah. To say that Jesus is the Christ is to testify that he's the perfect mediator between God and man. To say with your life and to say with your words that he is the Christ means that you're going to talk about the fact that this Christ, that he took the punishment for sin, which was due to us, which he has borne and which we should have suffered, that he was made a sin and a curse for us, enduring the most grievous sorrows in his soul and the most painful sufferings in his body. It means that we are saying he was crucified, that he was died, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day. All these things of first importance, Christian, that you know in your heads and that you repeat with your lips, but you testify in your house that these things are actually true. How? That you deal with sin in the way that Scripture tells us to deal with it. If he's truly Christ, then I will confess sin. Because there is freedom for sinners. There is rescue for sinners. I profess that he's Christ not by merely just putting on a good face and carrying on, but by humbling myself and saying, the way that I spoke to you yesterday, that was absolutely harsh, and I have bitterness in my soul. I see that. That's saying that he's Christ, that you're trusting in the merits of Christ, not just giving lip service to Christ, but it's proven in the way that we humble ourselves, we confess to our sins to one another, and we repent of our sins. The goodness of Christ's worth is seen in our gladness to submit ourselves and to confess our sins unto him. Because we're saying, I'm not righteous, but Christ is. We proclaim that he is Lord and he's Christ. Friends, the watching world must not only hear with our words that he is Lord and Christ, but see it reinforced in our very homes. So what a tremendous opportunity God has given to us to proclaim this truth. It's proclaimed right now in pulpits all across the world. 
but you are going to go home and you will gather around with your particular family and you have the opportunity to proclaim Christ, that he is Lord and that he is Messiah. So may the Lord continually and graciously work within our marriages, within our parenting, and within our vocation, that we would all testify with a united voice, he is Lord and he's Messiah. Father, we do pray that you would glorify yourself. That is our deepest and greatest desire, that as you have ransomed us, forgiven us, and welcomed us, that, Lord, you would glorify yourself through us. Cause the goodness of the gospel and the greatness of what it means to trust in you as our Lord and as the one who is the Messiah to not merely be lip service, but may it be seen in the way that we humble ourselves, the way we confess sin, the way we trust in the merits of Christ's blood, and the way that we welcome one another and forgive one another. Lord, transform our marriages, transform our parenting and our children, and Lord, transform even the particular vocations that you've called us to, that we would be found faithful, that Christ might be seen as glorious, we pray. Amen.